Good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We'll be in uh, Acts this morning, Acts chapter 1. And I would really like to encourage you to be a part of the congregational meeting next week, next Sunday night. Um, It's not a business meeting, it's a congregational meeting, like we're going to get together as a congregation. And the elders spent a good part of our elders meetings this last uh, month uh, really preparing for that. And I think it's going to be a really nice time. We're going to spend the first part of the time with an eye to 2022 and just thinking about what God has done and is doing in our church and his community and really with, uh, with hearts of gratitude and for God's grace and the way he has moved. And then we're going to spend some time praying and then we'll spend some time thinking about 2023 and the vision moving ahead um, as a church and for ministry and all of that. And then we'll spend some time thinking about the, the, the one item of business, uh, which is the, the budget and voting on that. So we have, we'll have child care provided. If you're a member, please be a part of that. If you're not a member and you'd like to see how we do things, you can do that too. You're welcome to come um, and be a part of that. But um, if you are a member, please be, please be a part of this so we can be together as a body of Christ, just thinking about what God is doing and will do in our church. All right, so the passage I'm going to read here is Acts 1, 6 through 11. It is what we classically call the ascension. Excuse me. So the word of God says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at, at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we, we come to you asking that you would help align our, our thinking and our, our attention on the advents of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do that so that we might live urgently for the cause of Christ, that we would not be lazy or uh, apathetic to the things of the Lord, but we would, we would pursue you and we would do that with urgency. So I pray for your help. I pray that the gospel would be clear and encouraging to your people today. I pray that we would uh, look to, to Christ's second coming as our blessed hope. And rejoice in that. And live in light of that reality. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Alright so the hymn. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lowly exile here. Until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Those are the words of the hymn that you've. uh, Like a a chorus, a Christmas hymn. Um, song that we sing around Christmas time. It's a hymn that zooms in on the languishing of Israel, waiting for the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. 
And on the joy at his coming, it is an Advent hymn. All the, all the images it stirs in our hearts are appropriate to what Advent is. Israel languishing and mourning in lonely exile, lonely exile, ruled by others, no hope of rescue, save for the promises of God that one day he will send a Messiah and that that Messiah would rescue God's people from oppression. He would vanquish her enemies and he would restore her kingdom. You, you could imagine in those long years of waiting and hoping what, what, the, what those were like, like what, what parents would tell their children and what, what, what spiritual leaders would tell their congregations, how, how people would encourage one another. Don't lose hope. Sure, it's hard. It, it looks dark and lonely as if all is lost, but all is not lost. And you know why? It's because God keeps his promises and one day the Messiah will come. That's how they would encourage one another. The, the sentiment is what Advent is all about and why we take four weeks every winter to pause what we're normally doing and just focus on the season of Advent. It's a great reminder. Advent reminds us of God's faithfulness to his people. And even though often for you and for me, all things, sometimes they feel lost, right? Hopeless, hard, but we know it is not. And we know that because God keeps his promise. He kept his promise and he keeps his promise. He kept his promise. He sent the savior. The son of God came into the world. This, this world full of sin and rebellion against God. And he showed us what God is like. He taught us God's will. And then he stood in our place and died for us, being the substitute for our sin. And satisfied God's wrath, his justice against us. God keeps his promise. And God continues to keep his promise. The, the Savior will come again, but this time it's different. He's not going to come lowly in a manger in an obscure little village. He will come as a king in power and in judgment. And he will set all things right that are wrong. And he will finally and decisively restore his people. We call both of those things, those, both of those realities, Advent. The first Advent of Christ is his coming 2,000 plus years ago. And the second Advent of Christ, what we're waiting on now, that's his second coming when he will come again. And that means that we live in this life, this age that we live in is the age between the two Advents. That's where we live. Both of these Advents are vital to our faith. We look back with faith to the first Advent, right? We look to the Savior who gives us hope and courage and boldness. We know that God through Christ and his coming has redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. Through the cross, God has brought us into his family, freed us from the power of sin and shame. We look to that Advent knowing that we are justified by faith in Christ and that we are God's children. We've been grafted into his people. The first advent gives us tremendous hope, and so does the second. We, we know that the work of Christ, though finished, is not yet fully realized in this world. And you know how we know that? There's still evil. It's still around us. In the words of Andrew Peterson, we can feel the world is broken. We can see that all creation is groaning. We see evidence of that all around 
And so we sing that hymn, O come, Emmanuel. And we sing it with feeling because we, we do mourn in lonely exile here until the son of God appear. We live in this time between the Advents and we look to both of them by faith and with hope. And what I'm planning for this Advent season is to preach four sermons on the second coming of Christ. Well, I'm planning to preach three of them, maybe two now, depending on something, but somebody else will preach the other two. Um, But we're going to preach these on the second Advent of Christ. Now, I know that that's different than what we normally do, right? We normally focus on the first Advent. And most churches do, and we normally do. But I believe it will be very helpful for us as we live this life between the Advents. So starting today, we'll spend four Sundays focusing on four different passages to set our focus on Christ's second coming. And then on Christmas morning, December 25th, and just by the way, there will be a church service that morning. (laughs) Of course, uh, we will celebrate together the first Advent of our Savior, Christ coming. So with each of these passages on the second coming. Each of them had, you know, when the author wrote them, he had a purpose. He wanted to set Christ's coming in a context for us with the aim to shape how we live our lives. So we're going to try to pull those themes out. So it's not just believing that Christ will come again. It's more than that. It's, it's what the second coming means and what it should mean for our lives today. All right, in keeping with that, today's passage puts Christ's second coming before us as a motivation to live urgently for the cause of Christ. As we get into this, I think you'll see, you know, especially when you hear these two men standing in heaven, you know, from heaven in white robes, urging the apostles to live in light of Christ's second coming. The second coming or advent of Christ is motivation for urgent Christian living. So I think the passage has two parts. The first is the Q&A between Jesus and the apostles, their question and his reply, and then there's the words from these two men from heaven to the apostles. And so we just walk through it like that. So the question. Often people have looked at that question that these apostles asked in verse 6, And they see it as motivated by, I don't know, presumption or selfish ambition or pride. Will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? And they're thinking so that we can be generals in that kingdom. I've heard several sermons that are pretty down on the apostles for asking the question, mostly because of the disciples' past behavior. You know, like the the different times they argued about who would be first and so on. But I don't think that that's motivating this question at all. Not in this part of the narrative. Rather, I think that there are three big things that have led the apostles to ask the question in verse six. First, if you look back at verse three, you will will see that that the, the resurrected Jesus has been teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom. Now just think of that, okay? The very best teacher in the universe teaching the most glorious reality in the universe for 40 days. I think that that would whet your appetite, right? That would make you think, I want that, right? If you understood what this truth is, this kingdom, you'd want it. Jesus opening my mind to the reality of the kingdom. I think that would create a longing in my heart for the kingdom. And so I'd probably ask, now, Lord, are we going to do this now? Are you going to do it now? That's the first big reason I think that sparked the question. Jesus had been helping them see the glorious reality of the kingdom. If you see the kingdom of God for what it is and your heart is healthy, you'll want it. The second thing 
that sort of backgrounds this question is the reality of the one to whom they're speaking, the one they're posing the question to, what they've seen these last three years in him. It's hard to imagine what this was like, right? They were talking to Jesus. Jesus had amazed them nonstop by his teaching and his miracles and his healings. I mean, he made dead people live. He made blind people see. And the example of his life, like consistent godliness without any failing, no bad attitudes, no grumpy mornings, nothing, no complaints, no sin. Jesus had lived completely for God's glory. And he stood boldly against the religious hypocrisy of his day, especially by those in power. He often publicly called out the religious establishment for their fakeness. They, and they saw this. And he was crucified by that establishment. But it wasn't as if like Jesus made them mad and crossed too many lines and so they killed him. I mean, that's, that's not some unfortunate thing that happened to Jesus. This was God's plan for salvation. Like Jesus had told his disciples, he would die on the cross as a substitute for their sin. The good shepherd would lay down his life for his sheep. And then he did. He suffered on the cross for our sin. No one in the end took Jesus's life from him. You know that, right? No one took Jesus's life as if they had the power over his life. No one had that power. Jesus had the authority to lay down his life and he exercised it. He laid down his life. He had the demonstrated and obvious power to stop it if he wanted to, but he chose not to. And that left the disciples, remember when, they, when he died on the cross, he, it left them scratching their heads, depressed. They didn't know what was going on, full of sadness. Our savior, our, the one we put all our hope in is now dead in a tomb. But he didn't just have the authority to lay down his life. He had the authority to take it up again, right? So on the third day, after laying down his life, Jesus rose from the grave. The, the stone of, of, of the tomb was rolled away And Jesus took up his life again. And that's the same Jesus who spent 40 days with his apostles after that, teaching them about the kingdom. He obviously had the power to establish the kingdom. The apostles had seen in Jesus something they had never seen anywhere else or in anyone else. There's no earthly king that compares to Christ. Not even Rome could stand against someone who has the power over death and life and the weather, and sickness, and the universe. If you put all that together, the question seems like an impossible one not to ask, right? Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for men's sin, and then risen to life again, spending 40 days opening their minds to this glorious reality of the kingdom. I think I would have asked, are we going to do this now? But there's a third part of of the background of this question that makes the question, I think, also very relevant to us. Why they were asking this question. The third reason behind this question, I think, is that Israel was, in fact, still languishing under lonely exile here. The world was still broken. Sin was still a thing. Rome still ruled over Jerusalem. The devil still worked. Evil people still did evil things. People still got sick and died. War still happened. Babies and mothers sometimes didn't survive childbirth. Pricked fingers still bled. 
And I think that's why this question is super relevant for our day, right? Here we are 2,000 plus years later and pricked fingers still bleed. There are still wars. There are still unhinged young men who go to work one day with the goal and the ambition to simply kill his coworkers. There is still divorce. There's still abortion. Crops still fail. There's still evil. Pricked fingers still bleed. Can you feel the world is broken? We can, right? There's, there's a sense in which we should relate well to the questions that the apostles asked in verse 6, the question. They were not blind to certain realities. They were not blind to the reality of Jesus and his power. They were not blind to the languishing and suffering and evil in this world. And they were not blind to the goodness and the wonder and the glory of the kingdom of God. So they asked, well, now, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, even if the reasons behind the questions, the question was understandable, even if the reasons were understandable, Jesus makes it clear to them that the answer is not an answer that they can have. It's above their pay grade. So goes the first part of Jesus' answer. It's not for you to know the, the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This is not a question you or I can, can expect an answer on. This is above our pay grade. For whatever reason, that part of Jesus' answer, I think, is lost on many today. That part of Jesus' answer, when he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. I think that's lost on many Christians today, especially American Christians, who sometimes become very focused on specific predictive eschatology, the study of the end times. It has been lost on many who make predictions, on those who see a world event and then go write a blog about how this must mean that, or whatever. It's lost on many who write books on the end times based on things like blood moons and earthquakes and Russian aggression and Middle East politics or actions of the United Nations. You know, it's obviously good and right for Christians to think about the kingdom of God and the glorious day when Christ will return and set it up. We, we think about it for the same reasons the apostle did. We know, we know who Jesus is, right? We, we know what he is like. We know what the kingdom, we know how glorious this kingdom must be. We, we know that the world still groans with labor pains until now. So we rightly think about that day. We look to that day with hope and anticipation and with joy. It is our blessed hope. But we must balance that with Jesus's answer here. It is not for us to know the times of the season that the Father has fixed in his own authority. One of the unfortunate consequences of not hearing the first part of Jesus' answer here is not being able to adequately focus on the second part of Jesus' answer, which is verses 7 and 8. Listen to those verses again. Jesus says, but you, but, just contrast there, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the way that the logic of the answer works, I think, is vital. It's not for us to know the answer. That's, that's fixed in God's own authority. But there is something for us to know. 
In other words, don't fix your thoughts on the timing of things, but in light of the coming kingdom, fix your thoughts on what God has called you to do and will soon, in just a few days from when he said this, equip you to do. And that is to be witnesses to Christ's person and his works to the ends of the earth. It's a really big task. His witness to the ends of the earth. And you know, you think about how big that is and like the ends of the earth, like crossing all kinds of barriers, like geographic barriers and religious barriers, ends of the earth. That's, that's even further away than Hemingford. <laughs> that's a big task. And you know, here's the thing. We're not left with that massive task alone or without help. Jesus promised, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The most immediate fulfillment of that was Pentecost, right? A few days from there, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And from that point on, they were enabled to witness for Christ to the ends of the earth. That power meant a lot of things. I mean, sometimes it meant the power to speak in languages that they had not studied, languages that they had not known. Sometimes it meant signs and wonders to demonstrate the veracity of their truth claims. Often it meant boldness to speak the word without fear, even when fear would seem like the most normal thing in the world to fear, to fear, to, to feel at that time. No fear, even in the face of death. Always it was power from the Holy Spirit to enable his people to spread the gospel, the good news of Christ to the ends of the earth. Now, you know, the age of the apostles is over. They've, they've died. Um, they, they were faithful to their deaths, but they have died. And yet God through Christ and with his Holy Spirit still empowers his people to witness to him, witness for him to the ends of the earth. Every Christian, every, everyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone has the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in him. And God's spirit in us is what continues to enable us to be bold in our witness for Christ around the world. It is the spirit which gifts us with necessary and complementary gifts in the body of Christ. Gifts like teaching and serving and administration and generosity and evangelism to enable us to witness to the world. I think there's an intentional contrast between the scope of the apostle's question and the expanse of Jesus's answer. Here's what I mean. They asked, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? And I know why they asked that. They, it had a lot to do with how they understood God's promises to David, that there would be one of his offspring who would take the throne of Jerusalem and rule forever. And we, we know they knew that offspring, that, that one is Jesus. But Jesus answered them that they would be witnesses not only to all of Israel, but to all of the earth. I mean, he goes way beyond Israel. The good news, this hope of the, of the kingdom of God through Christ would not be reserved for Israel alone. It would be for the world. Or to put it another way, the way of Romans 1.16 the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or, or the way of Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles, those who are not ethnic Jews, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that goes right back to Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the savior of the world and you will, wit- you will be his witnesses to the world of that glorious truth. And that's what we're called to affix our attention to, not the timing or the seasons that the father has fixed in his own authority, but in the call to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I wonder, does it catch our attention? You, you know what I mean? Does it catch our attention more? Does, does, does what we've been called to affix our attention to keep our attention longer than the things like timing? And I, I don't mean this to be super critically, but I do think it would be helpful to note something by way of a warning for us, lest we not catch what Jesus Christ is calling for here, calling us to here. If, if a really popular Bible teacher, whoever you like, would announce a series that focuses on eschatology and promises a better understanding of the end times and hints at when Jesus will return, like you, you're going to know all about when Jesus will come. I think my sense is that that would generate a ton of interest among Christians in America. Or if maybe he decided to write a series of novels on it, for example. But if that same teacher were to announce a series unpacking the mystery of the gospel going to the nations and the call to missions, I wonder by comparison how much interest that would generate among Christians. Could it be that we have not adequately heard the way that Jesus changed the apostles' focus? Is it a right deduction from this passage that we should be more interested in the call and the duty and the responsibility as Christians to witness for him to the ends of the earth? I think it is. Now, right after Jesus said, you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth, Jesus was taken up into heaven. Uh, that's, that's what we call the ascension. He, he left the ground and he ascended right before them up into the you know, until a cloud obscured their view and they could see him no more. And Jesus was done with that ministry, that first Advent ministry. And they were just staring up into heaven, watching him leave. And you know, honestly, I'd be doing the same thing, wouldn't you? I mean, so I'm, I'm from Orlando and that's near Cape Canaveral, Florida, which has all those rockets and shuttles and stuff. You know, so growing up as a kid, every time a shuttle went off, no matter where you were, you would go out and you'd watch it because you could see it real clearly. And you'd watch it until you were blinded by the sun or it was gone out of your view. You just watch it. And all of us would do that. It was, it was cool. It was interesting. All Central Floridians know what that's like. If you're in school, the whole class goes outside. If you're in town, everyone goes out on the sidewalk. Even at my house, I would just walk outside and watch it. Yet I know that those rockets are just rockets, right? And the shuttle's just the shuttle. It's our tech that makes them go up, you know, rocket fuel and, and so forth that makes it go up into the sky. And they're eventually going to come down. It's still interesting though, right? Infinitely more interesting, indeed amazing, is the Son of God ascending into heaven. Having completed his work that he came in the first advent to accomplish, 
So those guys just stood there gazing into heaven. You can almost picture it, right? So normal. And then two men dressed in white, angels likely, standing with them all of a sudden. And they said to him, look, look what they said to them. Men of Galilee, this is verse 11. Why, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go, back, go into heaven. And you, you see what they're doing there, right? The implication there. They weren't denying the importance of eschatology. Instead, they were emphasizing it. Jesus will come again. And the, you know, what's really interesting, interesting to me is why they, why they made that point. The implied reason that they are emphasizing is so that the apostles would not just stare into heaven, but be about what God has called them to do in this life. You see, Jesus's return is not only our blessed hope. I mean, it is that, right? Of course it's that. It's why we can rejoice in suffering. It's, it's why we can have hope, even though we continue to see terrible things around us. We know Jesus will come, and we know that when he does, he will set it all right. We know evil will not triumph. We know that we will not always struggle with sin. We know there won't always be persecution. We know that Jesus will come. It is our blessed hope. But Jesus' second coming is also our motivation for urgent Christian living for evangelism, for outreach, for missions, and for urgency in all of those things. There's a set amount of time for this global evangelism to happen. A set amount of time in which we live and die to make him known. And then he will return. Jesus is coming again. And we do not have time to stare into heaven. Jesus is coming. The second advent is our blessed hope. And it is our motivation for Christian living. So what are we to do with a passage like this? How do we apply it? I mean, apply it to your life, right? Like today? I have a few suggestions to get us maybe on the path. First, man, let's not be discouraged. Let's not be defeated. Like when you, when you see what's going on in this world, how hard it is when life is personally hard for you, do not be discouraged. I have a sense that it will get a whole lot worse before it gets better. And I don't say that to discourage you, but to fix your eyes on Christ. Jesus is coming again. You are not hopeless. Look to him as you see the world the way that it is. All is not lost. And that's because Jesus is coming again. The brokenness of our world and even the personal sin that you struggle with, it should leave us longing for his coming. It should leave us wanting it. It should leave us crying out, come, come Lord Jesus, come. Second, let's not be heaven gazers. In light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, let's get about this. Shatteron needs the gospel. Shatteron needs the, your neighbors need the gospel. Your kids need the gospel. Your parents need the gospel. Your neighbors, the nations need the gospel. 
There are people groups today without the good news that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. There is a thick curtain shielding a huge population of Muslims from the gospel of grace. There are literally billions of people today who live outside of the reach of the gospel. Jesus is coming, friends. He is coming. Let's do this. The reality of Jesus is coming should govern many things about our lives. Many things about our ambitions. Many things about our direction and choices. I think it should even govern some of the day-to-day stuff. I mean, do I have time for this particular focus? Right? I mean, is this particular focus, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, should I put my, my energy and my time and my treasure into that? Young people, I, I think the reality of Jesus' coming ought to govern your decisions in life. Govern them. Like, what career you should pursue. Even maybe whom you should marry. Friends, are you living in light of Jesus' second coming? Are we, as a church, living in light of the reality that Jesus is coming? I have good news for you. I have really good news for you. Good news that should give you tremendous hope and should also spur you on to radical, urgent Christian living. That good news? Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful that you have not left the building for good. And we look forward with hope and with anticipation to your return. We, we cry out like at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. And we, we long for your coming. We long for that day. Lord, I pray and I hope that we are all praying this together that we would long for that day, that we would live for that day, that we would, we would set our ambition to live in light of the reality of the second coming. And we thank you, Lord, that all is not lost. We thank you that evil will not triumph. We thank you that justice and oppression, justice will reign, oppression will be vanquished. You will rule. We look forward to that day with hope and with anticipation. And so we pray together, come Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.